Blog Talk Radio. Cheers, we're live. Now we're live with everybody. Cheers. Long time no see. Two whole weeks, again. Two busy weeks. Like clockwork. It feels like it's been a lot longer. <laughs> it's been crazy busy for us. In a good way. In a good way. We're still recovering from the weekend. Here's the care. Love it. Adore it. Exhausted. Yep. As is everybody who was there. Can't wait to do it again. Yeah. But yeah, Scares the Care weekend was this past weekend. We're displaying our, our, our signs up at the top behind us. Yeah. So, yeah, they're a fantastic organization. If you don't know about them yet, I, I, I You haven't know. been looking to us. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we talk about them almost like all the time. But, yeah. A fantastic organization that helps out three or four families a year. Uh, a burn victim, a breast cancer warrior, and a child uh, who is battling cancer. And a fourth family if we raise enough funds, which at least we have. Uh, I think so. I hope so. It was a pretty good year. It was a great year. Yeah. Considering, uh, you know, some All of the last minute changes, it's, it was a great year. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody had a great time. Managed to uh, get a good crowd there at the Double Tree out there in Williamsburg, who was a fantastic host, as, as always. always. Oh, they love having us out there. Yep. So, but yeah, uh, I'm still hurting because I did the 5K on Saturday morning which, with Paul, with Paul, who, with took, Paul. who took mercy on me. I greatly appreciate that. He was very kind, and uh, he could have run me into the ground, um, but he hung with me and uh, got me to uh, kind of drag me along, <laughs> and my time was about 15 minutes slower than it was two years ago. So. And Marsha and I were just dancing at the table. I need to take a hint. I need to. <laughs> I need to kind of get back in shape again. But. Oh, so we'll do some walk run this week. Yep. Because it's cooler this week. Yep. So, but yes, as Beth mentioned, we got all kinds of uh, some fun stuff up here. Uh, over here, by Ling. Which was awesome. She was, she's a fantastic act, fantastic actress. Wow. I can't talk. Oh, dear. And um, a really sweet person. Oh, she, oh, was, she was wonderful. Fantastic. She was wonderful. So, yeah. You might have seen, uh, we posted a picture of us with her on our uh, Facebook and Instagram timeline. So, yep. that was, that was a so that's her angel, uh, her picture from Angel. So. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's come, let's scoot over here. We'll go out of, we'll go out of order. <laughs> so, over here, um, beautiful Guardians of the Galaxy poster. Now, the person who signed this is not on that poster, um, but it was a, a gentleman by the name of John Anderson. And you could say he's... Uh, Hollywood's leading extra. Yes, um, he's been in many, many things, but he's not the leading man. He's always the extra. Yeah. And he has no problem saying, cover me in latex. Yeah. Um, and that, he actually played one of the rangers in this one. Yep, in, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Well, again, one of the nicest people you could hope to meet. And so. he's always called our friend John Anderson. Yeah. He is a friend to all. Yep. Um, so he got that signed for us uh, along with uh, a baby group one, which uh, is on the other side of the bay and we haven't gotten we'll frayed yet. We'll, we'll be properly training them all soon. And he, of course, signed our Guardians of the Galaxy 2 um, movie, uh, which has already been previously signed by Sean Gunn and uh, Brooker. Yep. So. And then finally, best, best My all-time favorite actor in the world, Tim Curry. Yep. Now, he was, to be clear, he was not there. No, but this was he a could, fundraiser for yeah. Scarce Like Care that happened in January. Yep. And they got uh, 200 of these posters behind me that were sent to England uh, to his manager, and his manager got them all signed and documented, and then they were sent back to us. And so I said if there was going to be one left while we were there, I was going to get it, and they had some left, and so I got it. Yeah. And I am in love with Tim Curry. This man is awesome. Yeah. And that's just scratching the surface of what this weekend had to offer. There were, you know, tons of fantastic vendors there. Yeah. Um, It was actually supposed to be a Rocky Horror Picture Picture Show reunion. But COVID yeah. and Canada and England aren't letting people in and out. Yep. <laughs> so they couldn't come. Yep. Uh, and Marsha, who was with us all weekend long, our, our, our wonderful friend and guide, Marsha, joined us there to help rep haunts all weekend long. Yeah. And Tracy Thomas, who was in Rent as uh, Joanne in the movie and also on Broadway, was there. And uh, we got her to sign our DVD, and Marsha got the same with her at karaoke. So she is. So happy. <laughs> yep. So that was that was awesome, and there were good uh, good presentations and mm-hmm. seminars throughout. We yeah. didn't get to catch too many of them, but we did see our friends at uh, 
CPRI. Um, yes, they did a fantastic presentation on evidence yep. uh, for paranormal investigations. Of course, Steve was there. Uh, Steve Bilge was there as well, checking that out. Yep. So, hey, Steve, I see you're, see you're here tonight. Good to see you <laughs> again. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, he was there with his family on Saturday and checked out that as well. And, yeah, it, man, it, it, was, it was just a good weekend hit by all. It is. So, so if you've never been, definitely go join the Facebook page so you can see what this is all about. It's all about <laughs> people who love to raise funds to help these families and have a great time with scary movies and scary genre. Yep. Because we can't forget the comic book people who were there, the authors who were there. Yep. Um, it's just the genre that everybody loves. Costume contest, the whole nine yards. Fantastic time. Um, but yeah, so we thought that given the fact that we're coming off this kind of, you know, celebrity, celebrity filled weekend and having all kinds of fun and all this and that, that uh, we would go ahead and we do some celebrity stories tonight. <laughs> so we have our, our episode, our um, Death on the A list episode, as we <laughs> called it. Um, it was just fun doing this. Yeah, so uh, all kinds of. Um, you know, from basically, you know, going back as far as, uh, you know, gosh, over a century ago at this point with some of these uh, uh, actors and actresses and coming up through the years. So all kinds of good stories that we got for tonight, at least we like to think so. We hope you'll enjoy them as well. Yeah. And Before so, we get started, thank um, you, Glenn, for liking the shirt because I'm no. living my ghost life. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, and you might not see the leggings, but they say Nightmare Before Coffee. Nightmare Before Coffee. One of my purchases. It is weekend. a Nightmare Before Coffee <laughs> every single morning. All right, now we'll go to the story, so I had to show off the outfit. All right, so we're going to start off with Lucille Ball, uh, everybody's favorite leading lady uh, on TV and screen. She lived in Beverly Hills on Roxbury Drive. And um, let's start with, of course, how she got into this business. Uh, During the early years of television, very few women had accomplished as much as she did. Uh, She was, of course, remembered for those for I Love Lucy, uh, but her legacy goes much, much deeper as an actress, as a comedian, as a model. She was a studio executive and producer, not something easily achieved for women at that time. She was born in 1911 in Jamestown, New York. She found her pa- uh, passion for a performing on stage at a very young age, and at the age of 15, her mother enrolled her uh, in drama school in New York City. Now, she had some challenges, as all actors and actresses do, and of course she had criticism, uh, but she was determined to succeed. So she actually started working in the fashion industry in, uh, at the age of 17, and she was always looking for that break to get into acting. Eventually, she finds her way onto Broadway uh, in the chorus line, and uh, this happened about 1932. After about a year of that, she decides, you know what, let's just go to Hollywood and see what she can achieve. Uh, she finds her way onto the silver screen. Her career is, of course, done in fits and starts at this point in time. But she is with her husband, Desi, as everybody remembers Desi. Uh, and they find some serious traction because they start I Love Lucy in 1951. Uh, the years that follow, Lucille will have many, many, many other achievements. As I said, she was the first woman to have a television studio uh, and be the head of it. Uh, this is called Desi Lucy Productions. Uh, we can thank Lucia Ball for the wonderful world uh, that brought us Mission Impossible and Star Trek. She produced those. Um, despite her ascension to the ranks of the elite studio executive, she never, never forgot her love of acting, and so she continued to take roles uh, on the silver screen and television uh, for the rest of her life. She was honored with 13 Primetime Emmy Award nominations. She won four of those times. She has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for film, one for TV. Uh, she has the Crystal Award for Women in Film, the Golden Globe Cecil B. DeMille Award, shown that in 1979. Uh, she had an introduction, induction excuse me, into the TV Hall of Fame in 1984, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Kennedy Center Honors in 1986, and the Governor's Award for the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences in 1980. So she has achieved a lot. Uh, she fell ill, unfortunately, in mid-April of 18, uh, 1989, and she passes away about a week later. Uh, she posthumously was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in July of 1989, and she also gets many, many allocates for many years past that. One of the best ways to actually go learn about her and her life and uh, 
her husband, Desi, as well, is to actually go to Lucia Ball of Desi Arnaz Museum and Center for Comedy in Jamestown, New York, and they have been honoring uh, Lucy's legacy since 1996. Now, while she died at the age of 77, she's been reported to still be hard at work at the Hearts Building at Paranormal Studios, where Desi Moon Studios was once located, and it's also where they filmed the I Love Lucy show. Uh, now, Night Watchmen at the studios report seeing the spirit of a woman who haunts the upper floors, giving off a strong scent of old flowery-like perfume. Given how much she loved her work, it's not surprising that she haunts and stays on the studio grounds. Lucy is also said to still linger in her old home on Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. Well, she didn't die in the home. It was her main residence at the time that she passed away. Reports of seeing Lucy in the residence are common despite or perhaps because of the fact that the home was sold and gutted after her death. A friend of Lucy's went by the home while construction was ramping up and reported seeing a vibrant redhead peering through the fence at what was left of the home. She appeared to be upset and confused about what was going on at her home. She then walked around the south corner of the house and disappeared. While she might not have been a fan of the work that was done on the place, Lucille apparently decided to hang out and see what the new owners did to it. Lucille's ghost is said to be playful, of no trouble to the living residents of the home, and she spends a lot of time in the attic, where it sounds like she's moving boxes and rearranging the furniture. Someone even bloated the idea that Lucy might be hosting a party in the space, while others have reported hearing the I Love Lucy theme playing softly in the space on more than one occasion. Lucy's presence has been a welcome and a natural part of the home by the current owners. When someone suggested to them that they should see about having the spirit banished from the house, the owners said, I would never do such a thing to Lucy. Good uh, owners. Yeah, very good owners. You don't, you don't, you don't banish Lucy, Lucy at all. No. 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 Bad person to suggest. <laughs> Lucy's still there to this day, enjoying. I would her, happily host Lucy in our house. Enjoying her parties in the attic. We have space up there. We do. Not much. I mean, we've been playing that a little bit, but it could use a little more space. Yeah. Anyway, no, any comments? Nope, no questions or comments yet. Okay, uh, you take one. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I learned a lot about this one. This was a, this was a really good one. So, this goes back even before Lucy. Lucy certainly, you know, very early in the Hollywood in, in Hollywood and on television and stuff like that, taking a step back even before Lucy. Now, while Hollywood history has had many power couples, one of the earliest pairings was back in the 1920s with silent film actress Mary Pickford and her husband, Douglas Fairbanks. Mary's story, story starts in Toronto, Canada, where a young woman named Gladys Louise Smith lived with her mother. After the death of Gladys' father, the family began to take in boarders to help make ends meet. In one of those lucky breaks that many actors can only dream of, one of these boarders was a man named Mr. Murphy, a stage manager who suggested that Gladys and her sister Lottie be given a couple of small theatrical roles in a show called The Silver King at Toronto's Princess Theater. Well, their mother, um, well, their mother also got a job there playing the organ. This foray into acting would change Gladys' life forever. Well, it took some time for her career to gain traction. Once it did, Gladys' stock quickly rose. At the insistence of Broadway producer David Belesco, Gladys assumes the stage name Mary Pickford, a name that she would keep in the years to come as her star rose in Hollywood and on Broadway. In time, the Canadian native became known as America's Sweetheart. Pickford was one of the greatest stars of the silent film era. She married actor Owen Moore in 1911, but their relationship burned hot and started to flame out after a few years. Late in their marriage, she began secretly seeing another actor, Douglas Fairbanks. She divorced Moore on March 2, 1920, and married Fairbanks just three weeks later on March 28. Before their marriage in 1919, Fairbanks had purchased a hunting lodge in Beverly Hills. And when Mary and Douglas were married, they began renovations to turn it into a four-story, 25-room mansion designed by prominent California architect Wallace Ness. In a classic power couple move, they combined their names to dub their home Pickfair. Pickford and Fairbanks used the immense space to entertain their Hollywood friends and celebrities of the time. 
Different guests at the mansion included celebrities such as Charlie Chaplin, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Amelia Earhart, and President Franklin D. Roosevelt. In the years that she was married to Fairbanks, Mary's career was incredibly successful both on and off screen. People flocked to theaters to see the beautiful woman with the curls on the silver screen, the power of which she leveraged into being the first woman to receive top billing in a film and the first woman to sign a million-dollar acting contract. Off-screen, Mary became the vice president of Pickford Film Corporation, and she was a partner with D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, and her husband in forming the film production company United Artists. Mary's achievements and accolades would only continue to roll in over the years ahead, at least until she grew out of the young and feisty role that she, uh, that she had uh, grown, grown best known for. Audiences didn't find the same allure in the more mature roles that she grew into in her late 30s, and the introduction of sound to movies was not something that was well-suited for her. She retired from film in 1933, but continued some roles on stage and in some radio plays. In 1936, she became the vice president of United Artists and continued to produce films for others. Despite, despite the star power that they emitted, Pickford and Fairbanks divorced in 1936. The divorce, the end of the silent films, and the death of her mother and both of her siblings over the course of eight years left Pickford deeply depressed. Pickford would remain in the Pickfair home for another 43 years, living there with her third and final husband, Buddy Rogers. Pickford gradually withdrew from stardom and became a recluse, staying almost entirely at Pickfair and receiving few visitors. Pickford's life came to an end on May 29, 1979, due to complications from a cerebral hemorrhage. Pickfair estate sat vacant for a few years, but ultimately ended up being purchased by actress and singer Pia Zadora and her husband, Mads Huseman Rickles. The names, sorry, I probably butchered that. <laughs> this occurred in 1988. Only two years later, word got out that instead of renovating the historic house, the couple had instead torn it down to build a new home. Zadora faced enormous criticism, but defended her decision, saying that the house was in terrible shape and infested with termites. Her story changed years later when she appeared on Celebrity Ghost Stories in 2012, though. This time, she said that they decided to level the historic house because it was haunted. Zadora had done her own research and believed the ghost was that of a woman who had died in the house while having an affair with Fairbanks. She said to the house, it was perfect. It was a dream. But weird things started to happen, so my husband and I, after trying to figure out what to do, decided we were going to have the house raised. You can deal with termites and you can deal with plumbing issues, but you can't deal with the supernatural. Zadora said the female ghost appeared in front of her children during the night, terrifying them. She also said that she saw the woman herself. The figure was dressed in 1920s attire, and every time she appeared, she was laughing. She would hear the sound of a party happening down an empty hallway as well. These weren't the first ghost stories to come from Pickford. Pickford and Fairbanks said they would often see what they believed was the spirit of a female servant during their years living the house. After Pickford passed away, Buddy Rogers said the ghost of a woman in all white came to him, and he believed that it was his wife. Other visitors said they also saw the specter in the den as well. Sadly, the secrets and spirits of Pickfair seem to have been lost with the house. All that remains are the tales of old Hollywood stardom and the legend of the house that Hollywood's first it couple built together. Mary Pickford. I learned something new with her. She's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Beautiful woman. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that she, again, was able to achieve what she did with be the vice president of the United Artists. Yeah, a century ago, which is, fun. that was quite the accomplishment. Yeah. This, gosh, that was right after the woman got the right to vote. Mm-hmm. So she leveraged her stardom very yeah. well. All right. So this is one you guys may have already heard of. Um, that we go into because it's fun. Uh, George Reese, originally known for Superman. Now, he lived on Benedict Canyon Drive, and his uh, death is something of a mystery um, or scandal or Both. everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those unsolved mysteries. 
So now, of course, we did focus on his role as Superman, but uh, as my mother pointed out in the um, uh, in the comment section, uh, he did play other roles as well. As a matter of fact, he was in the opening scenes of Gone with the Wind, as uh, as my mother noted there. Very, um, you know, kind of a fairly brief uh, brief role, but he was in there. Um, and he was in ton of movies, ton of movies, ton of TV shows. But always a small time after. Superman was really his big role. It, it was his big role, and it basically overshadowed just about everything else that he did with his career. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, he was actually very hesitant to take the Superman role because he thought that, you know, kind of the small was, screen was kind of for, you know, it, it was... It, it was, was not it, for him. It was the small screen. It, yeah. You know, film was where it was at. Uh, but he did manage, um, was convinced to take the Superman role, and that, of course, is what still really defines him to this day. If you look up um, if you go and try to do a search on George Reeves, like you look up images of him, you're either going to find just pictures of him off screen, mm-hmm. or you're going to find him in pictures as Superman. Yeah. Try to find him a picture of him playing just about any other role is... You're not going to find it. it it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult. But, yeah, so George Reeves still hanging around out there in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that... We're not haven't strayed too far yet. Almost all of these are in Beverly Hills because, yeah. well, it was Hollywood. That's where the A-listers are. That's where they all lived until planes got really, really, really fast. Okay. Now we are going to take just a short step away from Beverly Hills with this next one. We're going to go just a little further up the canyon, away from the let's see, Beverly Hills homes, so the other actors, and up in the canyon there was a house built by actor Errol Flynn who was known for his role as a swashbuckler and ladies' man. He was also Hollywood's original bad bad boy. Slim bought 11 and a half acres on top of a ravine off uh, dry and dusty Mulholland Drive in 1941 and had a modest ranch-style colonial built that he called Mulholland Farm. It had a black marble pool, tennis court, barn, and even a casino. Modest. 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 He also had some other amenities installed. Yeah, amenities. Creepy. Bad Boy doesn't... No, he's a creeper. Yeah, Bad Boy is kind. Creeper. These other amenities installed included secret passages, two-way mirrors, and peepholes so that he could keep, keep an eye on his lady friends. Creeper. Flynn threw many spectacular parties for his pals, including luminaries such as Charlie Chaplin, Mickey Rooney, and John Barrymore. Amongst the ladies that Flynn was reported to entertain were Heidi Lamar, Anne Sheridan, and Dorothy Lamour, just to name a few. Flynn would hire entertainers to come out to the farm for the parties, including live dance bands, nude divers, fencing exhibitions, and plenty of girls. Flynn's home was truly meant to be a center of hedonistic pleasure. However, things turned on Flynn in 1942 when two underage girls accused him of statutory rape. He was acquitted, but within the decade, Flynn would leave Mulholland and the U.S. to make movies in Europe, but also to avoid back taxes and alimony to his two ex-wives. Kramer. The flight leaving the U.S., Flynn wasn't able to escape financial difficulties. The collapse of a movie production in 1954 left Flynn financially ruined. He never fully recovered from this hit, and he found himself flying to Vancouver to lease out his yacht. Well, there, Flynn's hard-driving lifestyle caught up to him. Flynn started complaining of severe pain and started to have difficulty walking. A doctor suspecting spinal issues based on the symptoms treated Flynn with an opioid to alleviate the discomfort. While Flynn, was claim- well, Flynn claimed to feel much better, he became unresponsive shortly thereafter and never regained consciousness. He was pronounced dead on the evening of October 14, 1959, at the age of 50. He had suffered a fatal heart attack with fatty liver disease and cirrhosis of the liver listed as contributing factors. By the time Flynn died, Mulholland Farm had been sold off by his first wife, Lily Demita. It was purchased by Stuart Hamblin, who was one of America's American radio's first singing cowboys. The Hamblins were devout Catholics and reported no strange occurrences while they lived at the home over the course of 20 years. But the family matriarch, Susie Hamblin, 
had a tale to tell in the later years of her life. In an interview, Susie recounted the night that Flynn died in Vancouver. She said that the family was enjoying a relaxing and quiet evening when all of a sudden the pipes in the house started to moan and vibrate. It was as if the very bones of the place were rattling. While Holland Farm shuddered with the loss of its builder. While other reports of paranormal activity during the stay of the Hamblins are scarce, or at least well-buried, things got interesting in 1980 when singer-songwriter Rick Nelson bought Mulholland Farm with his family, including his children Tracy, Gunnar, and Matthew. Nelson's would be the last residence on Mulholland Farm. The first person to publicly discuss the haunting of Mulholland Farm was Tracy Nelson, Rick Nelson's daughter, who claimed that family members had occasionally heard the sound of objects being thrown against walls, the blurt breaking of chairs, and the shattering of glass. No actual damage was ever found. According to Tracy, whenever these sounds manifested, Rick Nelson would joke, oh, that's only Errol. Tracy said that she believed that the ghost of Errol Flynn might have been trying to warn Rick of his impending death. Whether or not his death could have been averted is debatable as Rick Nelson died in a plane crash in 1985. Gunner had his own tales from living in the home. He recalled times where a ghost would sit next to him on his bed and the violent slamming of doors. Gunner and Matthew were musicians in their own right, and it is thought that some of their early practices might have stirred up an already restless spirit. Nelson family members all agree that, that, that the heart of the haunting activity was Errol Flynn's den, with more activity occurring in that one of the house where Flynn was most comfortable and spent the majority of his time. Eventually, a real estate developer bought the property and demolished Flynn's home in 1988. Fast forward to 1997, when actress Helen Hunt purchased the property and built a home that she never lived in, selling it in 2002 to Justin Timberlake, who bought it for $8.2 million. If you ever happen to, you know, just run into Justin Timberlake, ask him if Errol Flynn has moved into the new home that was built on the footprint of his beloved Mulholland Farm. Never know. Never know. But, yeah, he was a lot of a creeper. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently his home had a soft spot for him, shuddering with his death. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going back to small screen TV uh, here with Ozzy and Harriet out. Uh, this is on Camino Palmero Street in LA. And uh, before we had reality TV shows, we had a real family playing themselves in a scripted TV show back in the 1960s called The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. The show was a huge success, featuring Ozzie and Harriet Nelson and their sons, Ricky and David. Ozzie and Harriet had earned fame as successful musicians before turning to the small screen with their renowned show. Their real home in Hollywood Hills was used for exterior shots, but the interior scenes were forced filmed in a studio. As a matter of fact, the show was so good it helped propel the career of their teen idol son, Ricky, yep, same Ricky Nelson, that bought Errol Flynn's home. We had the Paranormal Connection. The show ran for 14 seasons, a record at the time for a sitcom, before being retired in January of 1966. That record stood until It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia took the crown of only a few years ago. The Nelsons continued to work in various aspects of the show business in the years that followed, but Ozzy started to struggle with reoccurring health issues. He died in a family home on June 8th of 1975 at the age of 68 from liver cancer and with Harriet and uh, their sons at his side. In the years after his death, Ozzy's apparitions have been seen in the old Nelson house. He's been seen in various spots by a variety of people. His own family reported seeing his somber apparition walking around the house and hanging around his favorite places. When the new owners bought the home and moved in, they heard footsteps. Faucets and lights seemed to have a mind of their own, and doors would open and close at will with no help from the living. Paranormal experiences extended beyond the owners when, in 1994, a painter who was working inside the house had a chilling encounter. Thinking he was alone in the house, he was a little unsettled to keep hearing footsteps around him. At one point, the feeling of not being alone washed over him, and as he looked over, he saw a white, misty form 
floating next to him, almost as if it was inspecting his work. The presence wasn't hostile, it just seemed to be interested. Like the owner would, like an owner, excuse me, would act. Is Ozzy still watching over his house and the place he calls home even in the years after his death? Possibly. <laughs> All right, so on to my favorite uh, movie actors from the black and white era. Are you No, this is yours. It's mine? Yes. Oh, okay. Mr. Bella Lugosi. Oh, okay. Love me from Bella. <clears throat> on December 20th, 1882, in the small Hungarian city of Lugos, a legendary figure of Hollywood horror entered this world. This young man, Bella Fernick Vizio Velasco, caught the acting bug at a young age with his eyes set on the stage by the time he was 18. While his gaze went well beyond the boundaries of his hometown, he made sure that his roots would never be forgotten as he changed his last name to Lugosi. Bella Lugosi's early career was marked by smaller roles before he went on to play dozens of roles with the National Theater of Hungary in Budapest. Lugosi's acting was interrupted by World War I, where he volunteered to serve as an infantryman in the Austro-Hungarian Army. While he did survive the war, he was forced to flee his homeland due to the political upheaval that wrecked the country. He spent a brief amount of time in Vienna and Berlin before boarding a ship for the United States. As an immigrant, Lugosi found his acting career back on square one, but he quickly found his footing working in the Hungarian acting community here stateside. He eventually found his way to Broadway, where he first played Dracula in 1927. Dracula. Dracula. The stage production was a huge success, and Lugosi went on to play the role of the famous vampire for years, peaking with his critically acclaimed role in the Dracula film that premiered in 1931. Lugosi's success came at a price, though. He found himself typecast as a horror villain for many films thereafter. While he had a few forays outside the horror realm, those roles were often difficult to land, and they are ultimately not what Lugosi is remembered for. Lugosi's career ebbed and waned for the remainder of his life. He played more roles than we, can, than we can recount here, but it always came back to Dracula. Dracula so defined his life that when he passed away of a heart attack on August 15, 1956, at the age of 73, he was buried in a Dracula cave. Oh. <clears throat> now, well, Lugosi's stardom was firmly established by his role as Dracula, his brushes with the paranormal were not limited to the silver screen. Beneath his star, there was a mysterious woman, a woman who had yellow eyes. Well before Bella became famous for his role as the famous bloodsucker, before he emigrated to America, Bella encountered a woman named Heidi. The year was 1914, and Bella was 32 years old. When he met her, he claimed that, it, he claimed that as they locked eyes, he felt something like a jolt of electricity. Her yellow eyes were stunning. Bella was quoted as saying, it is utterly impossible to describe the fire, the ecstasy which shot through my veins. In an instant, we were in each other's arms and the world was lost. Her age was indeterminable. She was an actress. She was not outstandingly beautiful. Her hair was brown. Her skin was deathly pale at times. At other times, it was a blood blood red. That was when she had been fed. Her mouth was thin and ravenous. Her teeth were tiny and pointed. There had been many lovers. One never asked what had become of them. Men feared her and went to her at her command. Husbands left their wives because of her. This dangerous romance lasted for three weeks. One day when Lugosi went to run errands, she simply vanished. Upon his return, all of her stuff was gone without a trace. She simply vanished into the night, except for a note that was left for Bella. The note stated that they may never see each other again. However, Bella would always be hers. After she left, Bella had searched for her, leaving all other cares behind. He hardly ate and was having difficulty sleeping. Bella was on the verge of irredeemable madness. Irredeemable madness. It wasn't until Bella served in the Great War that he was saved. Bella found some success there, rising to the rank of second lieutenant. He was wounded twice and sent to Budapest 
Budapest during the recovery times. It was in Budapest where he was recovering that Bella met his first wife. Her name was Ilona Snezic. After the armistice of 1918, the happy couple returned to National Royal National Theater. Bella returned to work with a newfound sense of enthusiasm. He was sure that all was right with the world and that his future was safe. Any lingering thoughts of the woman with the yellow eyes faded from his memory. However, he soon found out that it wasn't meant to be. One night as Bella went on stage, something was wrong. As soon as the curtain opened, Bella was not himself, and he forgot his, his lines. He was as hollow as a dummy. He stared into the front row, and that is where he saw her, the woman with the yellow eyes, and those eyes were like fire. Once Bella locked eyes, he was somehow able to finish the play, but his mind was elsewhere. As soon as his role was complete, Bella hurried to the dressing room, but the woman was nowhere to be found. Bella was obsessed again. He proceeded to seek out the woman. His marriage crumbled as a result. It was as if Bella was deeply enchanted by the mysterious height. He would lie awake, thinking about her night after night. He saw his wife less and less until they ultimately divorced in 1920. It wasn't long after that that Bella found his way to the state as a political refugee. He was losing weight and sleeping poorly. Bella's mother had encouraged him to flee not only for the politics but also to escape the woman with the yellow eyes. She instructed him not to return to Hungary as long as whispers of the woman with the yellow eyes had um, and, as long as whispers of the woman with the yellow eyes were still on the lips of men. As Bella got himself situated in America, he met his second wife, Ileona von Montauk. However, shortly into the marriage, the woman with the yellow eyes appeared again. It was after one of Bella's shows that he found Heidi waiting for him. There would be no escaping this creature. She spoke in a very deep voice and stated that even though he came across the waters, he would not her powers. This time, Bella resisted. He was incensed at the intrusion and the heartbreak they wrought. He demanded to know what the woman wanted. Her answer left Bella no doubt that she was not of this world. She said, that I cannot tell you. I want to warn you, though, that there must be no third time. If there is, I shall strike harder. Someday, Bella, we shall be together as we should be, die. As before, Bella's marriage crumbled, but he would not follow the woman's instructions. Bella married again in 1929 to Beatrice Weeks. Almost immediately after the marriage, the woman with the yellow eyes appeared to Bella in the front row of a show. This time, there was no conversation. Bella told his wife that the marriage was doomed just days after it had started. Still, Heidi kept her promise and struck hard. Less than two years later, Beatrice was dead at the age of 34. Perhaps it was Bella's persistence, or perhaps Heidi could do more, no more damage, or perhaps the third divorce broke the curse. But the woman with the yellow eyes would never appear to Bella again. He married again in 1932 to Lillian Arch, and this time the marriage lasted for 20 years. It was with Lillian that Bella had his only child. Bella married for a fifth and final time in 1955 to Hope Leninger, and he passed away the following year in 1956. Whether he joined Heidi in the end is debatable, but it seems that a soul-sucking creature haunted Bella for all of his life, and Dracula was not the first. Even in death, there are a few strange stories connected to the Lugosi burial. Lugosi had a funeral procession procession that was intended to go to the cemetery in Culver City. However, the horses that were carrying the coffin had started to fight the driver. The driver wanted the horses to go right, however, the horses drew the hearse to the left. The horses went through oncoming traffic and down the boulevard. Turns out the ghosty had gone daily to buy cigars and read the newspaper on Hollywood Boulevard. The horses stopped right in front of the shop that he frequented. No one would ever be able to explain the situation. Bella's spirit is thought to have returned to at least one of his beautiful lifetime homes. It had been over 80 years since he slept in his stately Tudor-style home in Beechwood Canyon, where he lived between 1934 and 1937, yet his reputation still haunts it. It's called Westshire Manor, 
or Casa La Paloma, or simply the Bella Lugosi House. The hillside Los Angeles neighborhood where this mansion is perched is right under the world-famous Hollywood sign. Apparently, he, his fourth wife, fourth wife Lillian, and their large dogs, including great scenes and a German shepherd, enjoyed hiking to what is the, what was the Hollywood land sign at the time. Lugosi hasn't been the only celebrity to inhabit that manor. Actress Kathy Bates lived there for several years, and considering her horrifying world in misery and American Horror Story, it may just be that the home, uh, beautiful home has a horrifying vibe to it. So what is it about the mass that has intrigued so many for decades? Built in 1932, the home retains many vintage features, including a ballroom-sized living room with stone fireplace, a formal dining room with iron pan windows, and a library. There is also a master suite with marble fireplace, original tile work, and mahogany peg and groove flooring. Hand-wrought ironwork can be found throughout the home. Perhaps these stately features are what has drawn back spirits from years past, possibly including Lugosi himself. People state that there is an eerie feeling in the house and that there is something watching them as they try to sleep. One owner even stated that items were rearranged while he was sleeping. However, he never heard anything move. One thing is for sure, Dracula is gone, but his presence lingers on. It seems that he refuses to let his undead spirit die. Bella Lugosi. Thank you, Okay. Johnny loves Bella. Everybody loves Bella. Everybody, you have to love Bella. Yep. There was actually a Bella letter on the silent option table this time. It was tempting. Oh, very tempting. It was so tempting. And so expensive. I don't know what it finally went for. It was at 300 last time I saw it. Yeah. And it was just a very simple, it was a simple typewritten letter that was signed by, by Bella. But, um, oh. So tempting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to finally come back to the East Coast, and we're going to go to New York City because that's the other place that a lot of people live these days. So we're going to talk about Joan Rivers and Mrs. Spencer in Manhattan. Actress and comedian Rivers is known for her caustic comedy and quick wit. She was brought up in the Upper East Side penthouse in 1988 and lived there for 28 years before her death at the age of 81 in 2014. The trick triplex penthouse on 1 East 62nd Street is just steps from Fifth Avenue and Central Park, offering an incredible city and park views. According to the listing, the penthouse is a pre-war condominium set atop a limestone sheet 42-foot wide mansion. Limestone, there's a key in here. The neo-French classic style mansion was designed by renowned architect Horace Trumbauer was one of his great houses in New York. The four-bedroom, five-bathroom mansion has a total of 11 rooms, including two dramatic story, a dramatic two-story, 23-foot-high gallery room, a spacious living room, library, formal dining room, and two spacious terraces, five, five wood-burning fireplaces, a ballroom, gilded walls, crystal chandeliers, and a sweeping staircase. An office adjoined the master suite, and the house spans 5,200 square feet and 430 square feet of outdoor space on the terraces. However, Rivers was convinced her home was haunted by the former resident, Mrs. Spencer. Rivers resorted to bringing in a voodoo priestess to rid the home of her ghost, who was supposedly J.P. Morgan's niece and original resident in the building. According to the priestess, Mrs. Spencer is very angry at Joan's presence, and she thought she was still the dame of the house. Rivers has become concerned when her dog wouldn't enter certain rooms, and when she found the apartment to be cold, no matter what she had set the thermostat to. Rivers said the spirit was less than welcoming when she had moved in and had started to renovate the space. Other residents in the building also had their own experiences in the building and many common areas as well. In an effort to finally placate the spirit, Rivers hung a portrait of Mrs. Spencer in the building's lobby. This seemed to satisfy the presence and the hauntings diminished. After Rivers passed, the residence was purchased by Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Saab, 
but his plans for major renovations earned him the wrath of Mrs. Spencer. Prince was not impressed by the palatial home's Versailles-inspired appointment, and he immediately brought in an architect and designer. And just as the hammers were ready to start uh, with the gut job, the prince was thought to have a run-in with Mrs. Spencer. The renovation was canceled, and the prince put the residence back on the market in the same condition he had. Beware the woman who thinks this is still her space. You don't do renovations without permission. Marcia says, I'm having a big deja vu right now. Whoa. Oh, dear. Were you ever with Mrs. Spencer? So that story, that was a little bit of a difference than, uh, you know, kind of focus around at least Joan Rivers initially. But she, she was haunted by a spirit. She was haunted by a spirit. She's not, as far as we know, Joan I wonder Rivers, if they're friends now. Probably not. Probably not. Mrs. Spencer seems a little, well. Territorial? Yeah. And Joan Rivers is just such a huge personality. They wouldn't get no tea, no tea for Mrs. Spencer and Joan. Oh, don't know, but I feel like I have heard Beth tell that story before. Hmm. Not to my knowledge. This is the first time I've learned about it. Although Joan talked about it on um, daytime TV quite a bit. And there is that. Yeah, so maybe you saw one of those. All right, so James Mansfield, our last one? I think it is, yeah. All right. You can roll it. I can go with it. James Mansfield, one of my other favorite, favorite female actresses. She was, oh, God, she was something. Oh. Fantastic woman. All right, so she lives, of course, on Sunset Boulevard and Ruby Hills back in California. And uh, she was the quintessential buxom platinum broad sex symbol, well known for her impressive cleavage that she sometimes popped out. Uh, and oh, she totally used them to her. Oh, yeah, she, she knew how to use the assets. Yeah. Um, but she, of course, was uh, very much well known for her role on screen. She was an absolute master of self promotion. She used it to her advantage in every way. She photobombed. Let me just say, she photobombed and knew how to do it properly. Uh, the most common commanding symbol of her stardom was the palatial home that she came to reside in on Sunset Boulevard. Hamfield burst onto the scene in the mid-1950s by taking a page from Marilyn Monroe's playbook and taking it up a notch in almost every imaginable way much to the life of the paparazzi who Jane effectively had wrapped around to eat and baby things or... Okay. Want that? Because okay. <laughs> I'm done with the camera time, Daddy. Uh, now, of course, her wardrobe malfunctions, yes, Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake did not have the first one, uh, were famous and only helped her grow in her reputation as an irresistible it girl. <laughs> She found notoriety in a handful of her early films, including The Girl Can't Help It, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, and Kiss Them For Me, enough to win a Golden Globe as the most promising newcomer. She fell out of favor with the studios, and some came to consider her publicity stunts as being in portrait. Yeah. <laughs> Considering that boobs were not allowed to jingle. Every inch of that woman jiggled. I know. Anyway, I'm just talking TV. Anyway, we won't get it. In the most yeah. tantalizing fashion. Oh, bad puns. Bad puns. Anyway, in 1957, at the age of 24, she purchased a 40-room sprawling Spanish colonial mansion in Homesweet Hills neighborhood at the high-profile corner of Sunset Boulevard and Carrollwood Drive. Originally built in 1929 as the honeymoon home for 30s actor-singer Rude Valley who never moved in, by the way. It was made over in the classic Mansfield mold for over-the-top femininity and her hard-body Hungarian husband, uh, one-time Mr. Universe, Vicky Hargarty. Hargarty used his construction know-how to outfit it with a complete pink paint job. Cupid surrounded by pink fluorescent lights, pink furs in the bathroom, pink heart-shaped bathtub, and a fountain spurting pink champagne. Thirteen sumptuous bathrooms, including the master bath with a heart-shaped tub, mirrors everywhere, a stained glass headboard in the master bedroom, cages for her menagerie of exotic animals, a giant heart carved in her driveway with a huge JM initials on it, 
and the right wrought iron gates, and of course the same heart-shaped swimming pool with the message "I love you, Janie" in the bottom. There was of course a 12-foot 20-bulb chandelier that uh, was brought from uh, Hargarty's Mavis Mavis Country. I'm sorry, that's a little too much pink, Jane. I love you dearly, but that's too much pink. <laughs> anyway. Ever the wily self-promoter, she furnished uh, with over $150,000 worth of furniture provided free of charge after she wrote dozens of merchants, offering them the opportunity to promote the fact that their wares were in her home. Smart woman. Jane proclaimed it as her pink palace, and it became such a landmark that she would pop out on the balcony nearly every day to wave to the surprised fans who often toured by the estate like the well-endowed monarch waving to her subjects. A decade later, Mansfield's career was in the gutter. She had split from Hargacy, and her career was being managed by the shady Sam Brody, who had been a boy toy of her mother's. The movie roles had dried up, and she was lurking the nightclub circuit, and as always, the press. Perhaps trying to add to a darker edge to her persona, Mansfield met and was photographed with the notorious Satanist Anton LeVay in 1966. Although she was raised a Methodist, she had explored other religions, and no evidence exists to suggest she ever entertained a devotion to the devil. Legend had it that LeVay was insulted by Brody and laid a death curse on his head, uh, one that included Mansfield. The notion of black magic curse suddenly seemed less ludicrous when a number of bizarre calamities befell Mansfield in the following year. She and Brody totaled a, a, a sports car but walked away in intact. Her five-year-old son was mauled by a lion at a publicity sh- uh, photo shoot. The theft of several of her precious diamonds, false accusations of unpaid hotel bills, allegations of tax evasion by the IRS, a terrifying mob scene in Rio de Janeiro, which overstimulated fans, practically stripped her to the waist in their fervor to touch the stars. And for Brody being injured in a second car accident. Just a week after Brody's latest crash, tragedy struck Mansfield for the final time in June of 1967, when a couple of uh, and three of Mansfield's children were on the road from Biloxi, Mississippi, to New Orleans, Louisiana. After a nightclub gig and the Buick Electro that they were driving smashed into a tractor trailer that had slowed down due to another truck spraying a mosquito fogger. Mansfield and Brody were killed instantly. Contrary to the persistent urban legend, she was not decapitated, but the children miraculously survived with only minor injuries. Mickey Hargitay was quoted saying, as far as I'm concerned, the house died when James died. Despite the blood and the sweat that he put into the home, he personally refused to ever return to the home. Over the years, the King Palace was affectionately known would see a succession of owners and renters, many of whom came to suspect that the pink facade provided only a thin veil for deep darkness that permeates the home. The 18-year-old son of the first new owners moved into the pink house after Mansfield's death met a tragic end. He was reportedly killed in a freak accident when he discovered Mansfield's pink car and decided to take it for a spin on sunset. The new owners immediately left home in the wake of the tragedy, then singer Kath Elliott of the Mamas and Papas lived there in the 60s, and he later died of a heart attack in London at the age of 32. Another owner was rumored to have discovered a cache of Mansfield's clothing and found herself with a compulsion to wear them, altering the gowns to fit her, dyeing her hair platinum blonde, and amassing a collection of Mansfield's memorabilia. That is until one dark evening when she heard a breathy, disembodied voice of a female telling her to get out. Get out in which she quickly did. Ringo Starr was another person who owned the house and used to uh, actually use it to entertain when he was in Hollywood. He decided to paint over the pink exterior with a more subdued shade of white, like the famous Beatles album. But for some unexplained reason, the original color scheme would seep back through the white coat after several repaintings, as if her energy were willing her place to be pink once again. Eventually, the new color finally took, by the way. It just took quite a few shades of layers. Finally, in 1976, British pop singer Ingle Humperdinck, a fan of Mansfield, who met 
the actress from London and was invited to visit her home just two weeks before the fatal collision, felt that fate wanted him to live there and bought the mansion side of things. So when he, feeling it had lost much of its original personality, he restored the exterior to its pink splendor, although he did remove the swimming pool's message uh, when too many helicopters hovered overhead. And with its rosy essence resurrected, so too was Mansfield. According to Humperdinck, who frequently smelled her familiar rose petals perfume in his home, he believed he encountered the actress herself. Humperdinck recalled, I saw a figure in a long black dress in front of me. It was Jane, and it wasn't frightening. I was about to say, hello, Jane, when I realized she was dead. I didn't say anything, and then she faded out. The singer had peacefully coexisted with a vibrant spirit until she eventually stopped visiting after the home was blessed by a priest in 1980. After living happily in the home for 26 years, Humperdinck decided to downsize his lifestyle and sold the home in 2002 with the assurance that it would be preserved and restored to its glitzy, glorious self. So within weeks, the sale to the new owners announced plans to demolish it entirely. Humperdinck auctioned off the stained glass headboard, the sanctuary, uh, statuary and other artifacts, uh, keeping only a statue of Christ that had topped the miniature model of the Arc Triumph that was built in the garden. And Mr. Fan swiped the home's right iron address right off the front gate. Mansfield's sons by Haggerty were allowed in the home to retrieve a petrified wood fireplace from the den of the house that was installed by their father. Her daughter took away the copper hood over the indoor fireplace and the pool house that her father had made for her mother. Hello, Nina. Goodbye, Nina. Yeah. Nina is calling around. Uh, that was engraved with a pointed inscription, Jamie, my love will flame for you forever, Mickey. By the end of 2002, much of the outrage of Hollywood historians, the King Palace was gone, and its destruction could not eradicate Jane Stansfield's vivacious spirit and her love of Hollywood glamour for her aspirations to be taken seriously as an actress. Her lasting legacy lives on, particularly in the form of her daughter, who grew up to be the beautiful Emmy-winning and Emmy-winning actress, Arista Haggerty of Television's Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Again, another one of my favorite actresses. This was, this was an interesting episode of research. It was. It was. Learned a lot about... Old Hollywood. Oh, old Hollywood, yeah. Oh, and the connections within connections. Um, I mean, I grew up listening to the Nelson twins. Uh, and so reading about their ghostly hauntings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would have loved to see my house, but several of the houses I had to destroy. So fair, Oakland. I didn't want to see with us.
it's going to be a lot of fun. It is. It is. I can't wait to go. We're, Chris and I are actually going to be going in December to uh, check out um, the hotel and check out the brewery that we're going to um, do it for the, the pre the pre meeting stuff. Darn, a business trip to Key West. Oh, what to do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, definitely we'll be posting about that while we're down there, but definitely come join us on the, the real trip in December 2022. And uh, I think we're going to have some announcements in another month. For some other fun. For some other things. winter things this winter. Yep. So we're, we're always planning lots of hard stuff. Or lots of hard stuff. Yeah. Marcia, what a hard shift, yes. Always planning on, yeah, planning planning new stuff and stuff like that, brainstorming and whatnot. But we got some ideas going around. And we're working on the final details. Yep. Oh, and uh, one more thing, kind of a, you know, a little bit, you know, on a parallel. Well, we were out of town this weekend. Uh, our guys were, uh, you know, handling things here in town and running the tours this weekend, for which we are very grateful. Thank you very much to our guys for doing that. But uh, we had a special guest here in uh, Richmond on Saturday night. Ting uh, came to visit. Yep, Ting from uh, – American Ghost Adventures. They are the uh, kind of the premier ghost tour company in Orlando, Florida. So if you go to Orlando, go catch one of our tours. Because we were already talking about we're planning on yep. uh, when we go down to Florida in December, we're going to take a day or two in, in Orlando and uh, plan to uh, go on one of her tours while we're down there. But we wanted to thank her for coming on out and joining uh, joining our uh, Churchill Chillers tour on Saturday night when they were in town. So yes, Hemingway Kitties in Key West, Florida. Yes. Always yep. having ways to be into it. And, you know, you might catch him walking around on his own terrace. Yes, he does that. Yes, he does. As we previously discussed in Honda Cuba. Yep. There will be more of those Cuba. Um, but, yeah. Good times. Good times. Good times abound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and tired. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go check in on our new foster first. We have a new, yeah. a new baby boy named Zoe that we just got today. And uh, just so you got Nate, um, Nico and uh, and Vincent are in the other room. They were quite wound up, and uh, having them running around during the show would have been well. Disastrous. Their age not allowed in the office yet. Yeah, but it, it would have been um, it would have been something. So the camera would have been knocked over. Yeah, so we weren't going to do that tonight. But um, yeah, they're still here. Pia has gone to her forever home with Marsha, so yay for that. And she's been having a grand old time today. Yeah, but yeah, Zoe just got here like not even six hours ago. So yeah. she's settling in and getting comfortable, and we will uh, be hopefully seeing her put up for adoption in, uh, within you know, the next few weeks. Yeah. Yep. So keep an eye out for that. That's uh, Cat's Cradle of Greater Richmond. Yes. She's a beautiful boy. Yes, another boy. Beautiful. Oh, so. If she's still here in a couple of weeks, maybe we'll bring her on and show yeah. you. But that being her first day here, she's all snuggled in like even she's a burrito right now. Yeah, it was a long day for her. She was literally, she was just captured this morning. Just caught this morning. Went to the vet, came poked, to us. Poked and prodded and checked out and swept her over here, and she's just absolutely exhausted. So, yeah. So, with that, we'll go ahead and we will part ways for tonight. As always, if you have any questions of anything at any time you want to chat with us, we'd always love to hear from you. As a matter of fact, thanks again to Patrick, who dropped us a note earlier today with some uh, suggestions for future shows. Yes, we'll have to see. I think I have some of that stuff already started. So yeah, so we, uh, we will be uh, uh, taking, uh, taking those into account in the uh, weeks and months ahead and definitely going to be hitting some of them up. Um, also, uh, we, if you have any ideas? We're happy to hear from you as well. So, because uh, we are, we have a, we plan on doing these for a good long time to come. Yeah. All right. We will catch right. y'all later. Have a good night, everybody.